Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease, but I shouldn't. You shouldn't either. It's preventable. This is When Life Gives You Parkinson's. Joining me on the podcast journey is my wife and partner in Parkinson's, Rebecca Gifford, and reporter and contributor Nikki Reitmeyer. Honey, I think you mean that Parkinson's is probably preventable. Well, I, I suppose it is more accurate as it has not been prevented yet. But this episode, uh, and stick with it because it, it's going to be really interesting and you're going to learn a lot from three brilliant uh, neurologists. It's shifting the way that people are looking at Parkinson's. And how the, how the industry and the community is looking at the work that we need to do. Yeah, these are the authors of the Ending Parkinson's Disease book. And I was able to sit down and interview them as part of a webinar for our presenting partner, Parkinson Canada. So it was uh, Professor Boz Bloom. We had Ray Dorsey, MD, and also Dr. Michael Okun from the University of Florida. So one of the big issues is, is Parkinson's disease preventable? And Professor Boz Bloom sums up the issue pretty well here. The medical system is not good enough to give people quality of life, but it's good enough to keep you alive. I'm just saying it very bluntly, but that's the way it is. And and another one of the book's authors, Dr. Ray Dorsey, says doctors just don't ask why. What's the problem with doctors is that we look at diseases and we look to treat the disease. Rarely do we say, why did they get that disease? And what can we do to prevent them from ever getting that disease in the first place? Medical school, you know, we all medical school, you know, you get a disease, this is the treatment. You have diabetes, this is what you do. Heart attack, this is what you do. Cancer, this is what you do. We don't ask, why did you get the heart attack? Why did you get diabetes? Why did you get Parkinson's disease? I was never even taught, taught to ask why they get Parkinson's disease. Now, when I ask about risk factors, I usually find them. And what we should be doing is preventing people from getting it in the first place. Because better than a cure is to never get the disease in the first place. Better to never get hit by a drunk driver, better never to get HIV, better never to get polio. We need to really think about preventing these diseases and these kinds of studies will help us do that. Yeah, I think he raises an interesting point. You know, well, doctors treat diseases. I always associate maybe universities instead with doing that cool research as to why these types of diseases occur in the first place. And then, of course, in turn, you hope how to prevent them. And he made it clear that it's not the industry standard, like they're not talking about it at these medical schools where you would expect, Nikki, that they would be talking about this. They're not looking at the whys. They're not focusing on prevention. They're not thinking about prevention very much. So I think that this kind of a book and these noted doctors and researchers paying attention to this and coming out with something so confident and comprehensive is hopefully evidence of a paradigm shift yeah. in the in the medical community. I hope so. I would love to see that. Absolutely. The question I didn't ask that I probably should have is, what was the catalyst to make them start looking at that? If they weren't trained to do that, at what point did they go, well, you know what we ought to do? <laughs> right. Uh, because what they've discovered is really remarkable. Do we even know how they met? I think it was online dating. <laughs> I don't know. (laughs) No, it is interesting, though. But, you know, if we back up the bus a little bit here, did they say how exactly a degenerative brain disease could be preventable? Well, yeah. And that's what the whole book Ending Parkinson's Disease is about. It's a a big reason, Nikki, why I helped co-found the PD Avengers. And the answer is really multifaceted. 
recently I hosted a webinar for our partners here at the podcast uh, to Parkinson Canada. Yeah. Uh, with three of the four authors of the book. You've heard Boz and Ray, and and also Michael Okun was there. And uh, to truly understand how Parkinson's is preventable, Dr. Dorsey says we need to go back in time like 203 years when Dr. Parkinson was alive and, and first made his observations. Dr. Parkinson was saying he was describing something that was new. So Tremor was not new, but he was saying, I'm describing something new. And what's going on in London in 1817 is the height of the Industrial Revolution and London's the capital and the London fog had little to do with weather and everything to do with air pollution. And since uh, Dr. Parkinson's seminal description, numerous uh, products and byproducts of the Industrial Revolution, including air pollution, heavy metals, uh, certain pesticides, and industrial solvents have all been linked to Parkinson's disease. As I showed you on that map, you can look, the areas of the world that are most industrialized have the highest rates of Parkinson's disease, areas of the world that are least industrialized have the lowest rates of Parkinson's disease, and areas of the world that are undergoing the most rapid industrialization like China have the uh, fastest increasing rates of the disease. So interesting, isn't it, that they drew that comparison to the Industrial Revolution? And of course, it makes sense that, you know, if we're breathing bad air, it's going to have negative health outcomes. Yeah, it's it's uh, for for me. It's like whoa, that's like the start of it, the the boom, and then it just keeps you know uh, multiplying after that because we keep adding more and more toxins to our life. It's not surprising, like you're both saying. It's not surprising. It makes perfect sense that that would be a catalyst and one of the major reasons why our brains aren't working as well as they should, and that there's a coming pandemic. What I found is it's refreshing to have someone say it so confidently and to be a person who people are willing to listen to. And it's not just a theory anymore or something that we all know that chemicals are kind of bad for us and the air quality and the water quality affects how we live and our general health. But there's more and more evidence of that and research that's proving this in very specific ways. I find that exciting. Well, and if you find that exciting, Dr. Oaken discusses the impact of chemicals, pesticides, and herbicides. If you back up a couple of decades ago, uh, when we were beginning our careers, and now we're starting to get a little more seasoned, I won't say we're getting older, but we're getting more seasoned. Um, when this idea of chemicals and pesticides emerged, you know, a couple of papers, a couple of reports here or there. I don't think we paid that much attention. And when we think about risks to populations, Larry, what we need is numbers. We need large numbers of people and we need multiple studies from multiple regions of the world in order to be sure what we're seeing is real. And so you know, I'm not saying it's anybody's fault, but we didn't pay attention to some of those early warning signs. And it's almost like taking a bet. And what we're talking about is the risk. So the risk, if you're living on planet Earth, that you're going to develop Parkinson. And so, you know, if the bet, you know, structure is, you know, if one equals a push, nobody wins, nothing happens if you get a one. So you go to Las Vegas, you roll the dice and you get a one, nothing happens. Okay, that's a push. If the number, we call it an odds ratio, is less than one, then whatever you were exposed to lessens your risk of later you know, developing Parkinson. And if that number is greater than one, 
then you're in trouble. Then we're starting to think, okay, maybe some of these chemicals and pesticides could be related, you know, to the risk of later acquiring Parkinson's. So more people than not. And the shocking thing is that when you look at this list, not only are a lot of these chemicals and pesticides, um, you know, above one, they're up in the three, four, five, six range. And sometimes you can be exposed to multiple of them. And Ray, uh, Ray put up 10, 10, said 10 times. Yeah, well, Ray is the expert on this. So I would never, I would <laughs> never cross Ray on a number, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm just speaking to those of us that aren't in epidemiology, trying to speak in lay, lay people's terms, just to say that that bet is so, you know, it's such a good bet knowing that these people are going to, you know, potentially get it. And we didn't pay attention to it. But now, Larry, we've seen literally dozens of papers replicating the same findings over and over again. And Boss and Ray and Todd Shearer, that's what we like to see. When we see science, we get excited when we see multiple people publish on something, particularly large data sets. And so we have this information. We do virtually nothing with it. We do nothing with it. It really is crazy that there seems to be this clear link here, but like you said, do nothing with it. Like like the doctor said, they do nothing with it. You know, why do you think that virtually nothing is done with this information, with this data? There's too much money. There's too much money involved. Yeah. There's too much lobbying. Follow the money, right? Yeah. There's a lot of power and money and politicians and everything else kind of tied up in the and these companies maintaining power and their status in the economy. There is a there's a there's a bill that's waiting to go to committee right now in the U.S. Uh, and it's to ban Paraquat. And if you go to MichaelJFox.org and you and you look for the advocacy link, uh, you can uh, find out how to email your lawmaker if you're in the U.S. And I encourage everybody to do that because we need to start banning these chemicals. Paraquat is still used in the U.S. and Canada, though it's banned in 32 other countries. Uh, well water, another risk factor, according to Dr. Blom. I think it is a big issue. Um, drinking well water or living in close proximity to wells uh, is associated with the risk of developing Parkinson's. Um, well water uh, contains uh, demonstrable concentrations of both pesticides and trichloroethylene. So I think this is this is a clear risk factor. You know, we want to offer some tips while we're here today as well, Larry. If you live in the United States, for example, and if you have a well, you're worried about it. You know, you don't have a gremlin living in the bottom of your well, but you're worried there might be, you know, some chemicals in there. You can actually, you know, phone up and have somebody come out and check that water, usually government authorities, not just in the U.S., but in other areas. So if people are listening and they have well water, just an important tip. Now, that's good to know that you can call someone and they'll actually come and check your well water. Yeah, well, for sure. That's uh, I don't I, I I wouldn't have known that had I not heard it here. Yeah, look at the look at this podcast just teaching us new things all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what we're here for. People helping people. That's what it's all about, Nikki. Uh, there are other triggers for PD, which we've talked about in past episodes. Uh, repeated concussions is one. Right. Microbiome can be a factor. Uh, and there's even evidence that COVID-19 is a trigger now for uh, the onset of Parkinson's. You know, if you look at the history of medicine, there's quite a lot of um, interesting works in influenza and flu, 
cases and the later onset of Parkinson's. And there was a von Economos encephalitis where people had sleeping sickness and they had Parkinson's and Parkinsonisms. And so this is a real phenomenon. And one of the board members uh, on our research board at the Parkinson's Foundation, Richard Smaney, who's at the Great Jefferson Hospital in, um, in Philadelphia, studied this and actually took him a few years to get the FBI clearances to get the flu viruses, which he put in rabbits and showed he could produce Parkinson in, um, in these animals. And when they cut up the brains, it looked a lot like the spread that we see in human Parkinson. And so, you know, I think we have to take this really seriously, Larry. Um, the, there are real questions about this virus and it is very different than anything that we have seen before the way it mutates the way it spreads and coronaviruses are are different and we haven't had coronaviruses before people can have corona infections before but nothing like this and so we need to understand does it get across this barrier this kind of barrier that we have that protects the brain and spinal cord the blood brain barrier are the effects due directly, you know, from the virus attacking, you know, important cells? And, you know, most people in Parkinson now appreciate that it's not just a disease of dopamine, it's a disease of multiple systems in the brain. And so, you know, it's not just about damaging dopamine, although a lot of these viruses can knock out dopamine. And, um, and so, you know, what is going to place you at later risk? And, Maybe the, the thing that is most worrisome to me is that the virus sets off an inflammatory cascade. So when I say that, I, you know, I don't want to talk over anybody's head, but what I'm, what I'm basically saying is you get sick and your immune system reacts. And when all those cells in your immune system, they all jump. It's like they see something bad. They all jump at that to try to take care of it. When that happens, you can get an overwhelming response in the body. There is a very good chance that the link here, if there is a link, and there seems to be, and I was looking at a paper in Lancet Neurology just this morning with a colleague, we've seen autopsy samples, we've seen it seems to be able to get into the brain um, and other regions as well, that it may be more this indirect effect of the cascade that set off than the actual direct effect. So a lot of unknowns here. That is really interesting, but it's also really scary. Yeah. What comes to mind for me is that all of the examples that you learn about in history of research coming out of tragedies or great discoveries coming out of mistakes or, or, or wars, like things happening during war, or chemicals being used during war, and then they discover that it can be used for something positive too, for, for healing. And I'm, I'm hoping that something like that comes out of this, what it right now is a pretty scary situation. And, and Dr. Blom added to this discussion. There have been theoretical concerns, as, as Dr. Oaken has very eloquently uh, outlined, what is very disconcerting is that there are now, in two weeks' time, four published cases of people who had COVID symptoms and proven COVID um, uh, infections, who within weeks after having their typical respiratory symptoms uh, developed Parkinson's. 
uh, underpinned with abnormal dopamine scans. And they had these people tested for their genes and all the genes were negative for Parkinson's. You could say, well, we know that stress can trigger what was already about to become Parkinson's. So was this already underway? But none of these people had prodromal signs, the early signs like constipation or lack of smell or a, a REM sleep behavior disorder. So this came out of the blue right after a COVID infection. I'm not saying that this is definitive proof. We have to be careful. But the worry in our society is that a pandemic that's already happening is going to accelerate in the near future because of COVID. So people were developing Parkinson's after testing positive. Right. Wow. Yeah, four people uh, on record. And, uh, the, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's just four, it's four people. So Dr. Dorsey is like, hey, hey, listen, okay, it's four people. He, it's, he had this important thought and realization. None of the 100,000 Canadians, the 1.1 million Americans, or six plus six to 10 million people who have Parkinson's disease, except for these four, have it because of COVID. They have it for other reasons. We should not lose track of why people are getting it. You know, pesticides are going to cause a lot more Parkinson's disease, likely, uh, than uh, COVID uh, is. So we shouldn't, this is important and it might only add to it. But the, that's exactly the heart of this is not COVID. The heart right. of the things that we know and that we're uh, polluting ourselves with. Yeah, that's good that he sort of brought the fear level down a little bit. I was, I was getting kind of concerned there. But yes, realistically speaking, like you said, four people, but still an interesting correlation at the same time, if I can use the word correlation here, an, incident, an interesting something to notice at the same time. Well, and what I think is really interesting is that it's a warning that this doesn't only affect people's health, but it also could affect everyone in that it's going to affect the economy. When you start talking about large numbers of people with disabilities who will be living for a minimum of minimum of 10 years, and like in Larry's case, decades, mm -hmm. it's, um, it's a different argument that speaks to people with different ideologies, but um, there is an argument to be made to every, on every angle of this, that it's something that we need to be paying attention to. It's fascinating. It's interesting, though, how the COVID-19 pandemic is linked to Parkinson's, which these guys also consider to be a pandemic. Right. Uh, and I asked Dr. Oaken to explain just exactly why and how is Parkinson's a pandemic? The original title as uh, conceived by these two gentlemen and Dr. Scherer was uh, a Parkinson pandemic. And the uh, idea was that if you look at the definition, you know, the Webster's definition, whatever definition you want to look at, um, if you look at the derivatives of those words, you know, pan means all, demos means people. And the word pandemic, you know, when it appeared in the 1800s, wasn't a word that was exclusive to infectious diseases. It was just a word, right? And uh, and in fact, some might say during that time, we didn't know a whole lot about infectious diseases, maybe even washing our hands and other things like that. Right. And so uh, as diseases spread, we sort of uh, began to adopt this word. And, and it's now used by the World Health Organization, I think, quite appropriately to gather everybody's attention about mostly infectious etiologies. 
However, if you look at the actual definitions, you know, it's everywhere. It's in all cultures. It's growing more than linearly. Um, it No one is necessarily immune to it. It does check all the boxes. Now, we wanted to be provocative in the book and draw that comparison. And this was, by the way, before COVID-19. So, and Ray and um, and Boss wrote a paper and I was a handling editor on that paper, you know, about, you know, is it an epidemic or pandemic? And we had a nice exchange, you know, that it's really a pandemic. And we had written about that back in 2013 in one of our books, 10 Secrets to a Happier Life. But the the reality is that if we don't recognize what's going on, if we don't look at the numbers, if we don't appreciate that healthcare systems, no matter what healthcare system you're under, if we don't appreciate the rapid rise and now the most rapidly rising neurological disorder period in the world, we're going to not only bankrupt ourselves, but we're going to be left with generations of people who are disabled. And, uh, and so we need to, you know, turn, you know, we need an inflection point. We need to turn in our in our path. Isn't that interesting that they actually came up with the title before COVID-19? Now we say pandemic probably seven times every single day, but they came up with the title of this book well, well before that. But this truly is a disease that affects so many people on a global scale. By definition, pandemic fits the bill here. And, and one of the audience questions uh, during this webinar was, what is the general demographic makeup of people with Parkinson's? The pandemic spares no one. And Parkinson's is a worldwide condition. It affects men and women. It affects people of all races and ethnicities. Uh, we do know that women have a slightly lower risk of developing Parkinson's. They also develop Parkinson's at a slightly higher age. They're also a bit more likely to develop the tremor dominant form of Parkinson's, which we know is a perhaps more benign form of Parkinson's. So women appear to have a few advantages in the lead up to Parkinson's. But once you have Parkinson's, in fact, women appear to be uh, disadvantaged in a number of ways. They develop more dyskinesias, maybe because they tend to have a lower weight than most men. So they're more easily overdosed. They also quite remarkably are less well in seeking care. So I always say, we see in our center 70% men Whereas the real age division is about 53, 54% men, 46% women. So apparently when a man gets sick, the wife makes sure the husband gets to see a top doctor. When the wife gets sick, she takes care of herself. So we don't see enough women in university medical centers, which means women are not recruited for trials. All the trials in the Parkinson world are biased because they have way too many men which means that we can encounter side effects in daily life or loss of efficacy that because it's never been tested decently in women. Now, see, I found that really, really interesting when he said that more men seek treatment than women, because previously what I've heard is that women are more inclined to use health services compared to men. But the way he said it, I totally get that. That makes sense. Women pushing their husbands. You got to go see the doctor. Meanwhile, not going to see the doctor when they have things going on. Right. That's our unfortunately, our feminine programming. That's such an interesting question, you know. I'm sure that there was a million interesting questions that were asked during this discussion. Oh, yeah. Well, when you have access to neurologists and researchers like this, you seize the moment and throw everything at them. 
One question that I get asked a lot is, is Parkinson's genetic or environmental? If we said we knew the answer for sure, we'd probably be fibbing a, a little <laughs> bit. But, you know, we have learned quite a bit, particularly with the genetic you know, revolution and, you know, all the sequencing and the human genome project and the movement toward people getting sequencers and and companies like 23andMe and, and Ancestry.com and others. Um, and what we have learned is uh, a bit surprising. And it might shock a few people to know that despite all of the sequencing, all of the technologies that we have, we um, still have maybe 15%, maybe 20, depending on if you talk to a really aggressive geneticist. But, you know, you're talking, you know, only one in five or one in six people have you know, a DNA abnormality in their genetics that's responsible for their Parkinson's. So that means, you know, 80, 80 plus percent, you know, here or there, well, let's not argue a few percent, but, you know, there must be something else going on. And then when you look at Ray Dorsey's, you know, really insightful um, observations about Parkinson being the most, you know, rapidly growing neurological disease and you say well that's just because people are getting older right larry they get older they yeah. get parkinson well the groups that ray runs with in those circles they have taken that criticism and so they take age and they run it through and they control for that and they realize it's not just age right that's it, driving this mm -hmm. you see a lot of people without family histories and uh, the majority of people without genetics so there was this University of California researcher that coined the term that has now become very, the, the phrase that's become, you know, overly used and cliche and everybody claims it, but, you know, the genes load the gun, the environment pulls the trigger. Mm -hmm. But all we need to know is there's some relationship between those. And, you know, and one of the, the really provocative things about this book ending Parkinson is it really gets into the nitty gritty of, you know, could there be other aspects? What What is it we're missing? We're clearly, there's a blind spot here. We're missing the blind spot. Could that blind spot be exposures that are turning on and off these genes? Mm, so not just age, people without family history, there is a relationship between your genes and then perhaps the environment being the trigger. Yeah, so you, you need a couple of trigger events and, and, and the right set of, you know, m malfunctioning genes <laughs> to, <laughs> to, 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 get, to make that magic of Parkinson's. The right brew, the white, the, the right witch's brew. Right. <laughs> the perfect storm. Yeah. <laughs> Improving the quality of life for people with Parkinson's uh, was mentioned several times. It, it's a big deal because people want to be able mm -hmm. to do things. Uh, and so during this discussion, we talked about that. And at one point, uh, I asked Boz for some clarity on uh, what exactly or how do, how do you define quality of life? Well, I think we're now living in a time of personalized medicine. And what is quality for you isn't quality for me. And I think the time, you know, when I was brought up as a, as a, as a, as a physician, we were happy if the scores that we saw in the, in, the, in, the, in the examination room had improved. That was quality. Nowadays, quality is what, what is decided by the patient and, and the family. And by the way, we shouldn't use the word patient. It's a person living with Parkinson's. So this is truly personalized medicine. 
And I think the folks that go see their physician should, before they go, make a list of things they want to see improved. And it's not bradykinesia you want to improve or tremor, but it's your work or your hobbies, the stuff you like to do in daily life. And that is quality of life. And it's different for everyone. Uh, Michael Oaken and I just wrote a paper that we submitted to The Lancet. A tremor like this can be unnoticeable to a laborer who's used to carrying heavy loads, but it can be completely debilitating to a calligraphist. Mm. It's the exact same tremor, and it requires a completely different approach. It's personalized medicine. Hey, that's a good tip, isn't it? To make a list of things that you want to improve. Yeah. I mean, so instead of saying, my foot hurts, What's, what, what is that keeping me, me from doing? It's something to keep in mind yeah. for all of us when we go to the doctor, I think, is, what is it, what's the true issue here? And then kind of yeah. force them and us to think about it from 100 feet up. What I love about these these doctors specifically is they don't pull punches. It's like what Rebecca was saying earlier. It's like they're just like they're saying it. They're putting it out there. We, we asked, what can doctors do once, once you're diagnosed in that first stage of Parkinson's? What can doctors prescribe to keep the, the, the disease from progressing? So the honest answer to all the folks out there is we have nothing today to slow down progression of the disease except perhaps, perhaps exercise. That evidence comes from rodents. If you have a Parkinsonian mouse run on a treadmill every day, that mouse looks better than a mouse that's sitting in its cage doing nothing. And if you sacrifice the animal, you see that the brain has been adapting itself. And what is really cool is we published a paper last year in Lancet Neurology showing that if you exercise three times a week at 80% of your maximum for 30 minutes, your motor symptoms stabilize, whereas control people declined. Now, that's not the same as neuroprotection. It's maybe suggestive. But we then did a study in the same group that we're now publishing, where we did brain scans in both groups, people who were doing stretching and people who were doing exercise. The brain was shrinking in the control people doing stretching, as is happening in you and me every day. And it stopped from shrinking in the exercise group. And lo and behold, the exercises started to make the new connections, just like the mice, in their brains. Papers under review with brain now, and we hope it gets published. And now in my brain, I see this image of a mouse with like a headband on a treadmill. It's exactly, exactly. <laughs> in um, pink spandex, pink spandex. Okay, now I have that visual in my head of the mouse on the treadmill. Uh, that is interesting, though, isn't it? That uh, in a bit of exercise, you can stop your brain from shrinking. Yeah, that's... Uh... That's why I need to continue to, to, to work on my exercise routine and get out there and walk and build a sweat and dance with my son to the, what's it called, Aww. Just Dance uh, app? Just Dance Now. Okay, yeah. <laughs> loads, of, loads of fun. <laughs> Hon- honey, if you decide to, to put on the pink spandex, I have to have my camera with me. Uh, and we will be posting it. I will be the world's largest <laughs> the mouse. page. <laughs> A big revelation during this webinar for some came from Dr. Dorsey, who talked about dying from Parkinson's. Uh, so big reasons that people with a 
the Parkinson's disease die is uh, pneumonia. So sometimes people have trouble swallowing. So they have trouble swallowing their saliva or their food and they accidentally have that stuff instead of going to their stomach goes to their lung and they, pneumonia is a big cause. And then falls is a big cause. Uh, people fall and injure themselves. And we have the world's expert in falls, uh, Boss Bloom here. Next. So, 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 so why do we say you don't die from it if you do? Well, you do. It's the 14th leading cause of death in the United States. 100 people will die from Parkinson's disease today uh, in the United States. At least 10 will die from Parkinson's disease in Canada today. Um, it, uh, other reasons, you know, we're really good at treating other things like stroke and heart attack. So less, and less people with Parkinson's are dying from a stroke and heart attack, and more and more people are dying from advanced, uh, having advanced Parkinson's disease. But Larry, one thing that I often think about is something that you said really early on, and that is that people don't often die from Parkinson's disease. You die with Parkinson's disease. And that's what they tell you when you get diagnosed. But then the government here is tracking how many people are dying from Parkinson's. So it's, it's really a, a, it's a misnomer. It's, 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 it, 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 we've done ourselves a disservice as a community uh, because we, we've put that out there. And so now people aren't investing in us because we, they, well, we're, we're okay. We're not going to die from this. So why would you invest research dollars into it if when there's all these other urgent uh, diseases out there? And so we've kind of uh, mixed our messages. We need to provide hope to the people with Parkinson's, but we need to have urgency uh, to the general public and to the politicians and to the World Health Organizations to really focus on this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that, you know, as that search continues, that advocacy will continue to be a really big part of this. Oh, I, absolutely. Uh, you know, as the search for the cure continues, uh, advocates are going to be uh, super important for pushing the urgency because nobody is, has more urgency than we do uh, because we have a limited time to actually advocate before we get apathetic or we lose our voice or whatever. So uh, there is a pact uh, at the end of ending Parkinson's disease that the authors have written in the back of the book. It's a pact is for prevention, advocacy, care, and treatment. The journey to write the book um, with this great team uh, was really, it was interesting for us. It was insightful. It was scary, you know, and we spent a lot of time researching and trying to understand both Parkinson and, you know, we've been around Parkinson for our careers, but we really wanted to understand other diseases like polio and HIV and breast cancer and tell those stories. And so the book is a riveting read because it, it, it tells a lot of those stories. And what what did those communities and researchers and families and persons, you know, afflicted, what did they do? Like, what's the secret sauce, Larry? Like, if you wanted to do something, you know, for a disease and you wanted to move the needle and, and perhaps even talk about ending a disease and be, you know, be out there. And, and I think I speak for all the authors and saying, you know, we'll take the criticism of people saying, well, we shouldn't have changed the name of the book from the Parkinson pandemic to ending Parkinson's, you know, we'll take that criticism and we'll, we'll throw it back and say, we got to start that conversation, you know, maybe a very difficult thing to do, but it's time to have the dialogue and we're ready for the experts and the scientists and the lay people and the families to have that dialogue. And so if you study polio and HIV in particular, the, the common threads that come out, you know, of what these folks did to move the needle 
was P, prevent the disease. A, they had amazing advocacy, you know, efforts, you know, at this. Um, C, they cared for the people who had the disease. And T, they developed new treatments. That was what moved the needle. And, you know, and if I just take any one of those, I'll just take one briefly and, and, and explain like why we're not there. Let's look at the advocacy. You know, Dr. Bloom mentioned that, you know, people were handcuffing themselves. They were occupying the FDA. Um, they were putting a condom over Jesse Holmes's house. Um, they were making noise. They were being, you know, extremely charismatic. They were being aggressive and they got their message forward. By getting their message forward, HIV is funded at $3 billion, that's with a B, dollars a year in research funding from the National Institutes of Health. Now, people around the world may say, well, that's just the National Institutes of Health, but it turns out the United States National Institutes of Health is the largest funder of research in the world, at least that I'm aware of. $3 billion dollars. It goes from when Ray and Boss and I started when we were interns on the wards with HIV patients. It's a death sentence to a chronic disease. Look at Irvin Magic Johnson, you know, for example. I mean, it has completely changed in my lifetime. The needle has moved. Look at Parkinson. Where was Parkinson funded? It's like 201 million, less than 10 times, well less than 10 times, you know, what we need to make a difference. So the pact, we got to learn. Remember I told you I wanted to be a history teacher. We got to learn from our history. What did they do? Prevent, advocate, care, treat. So I think that's a really good message and that's the prescription for success. Well, yeah, and I'd also point to Mothers Against Drunk Driving because it's going to take people other than the people with Parkinson's to be advocates for us. And so we need our our, our families to come forward and, and be loud with us and our friends and our colleagues and, and strangers who don't want to get Parkinson's. This is the time to get and loud. And they're heroes. They're, those mothers are heroes, right? They prevented my kids from drinking and driving, right? They're the heroes. They suffered. They bear the cost unbearable costs, right? And they refused to be silent. They refused to shut their doors and, and cry alone. They shared their tears with the world and they changed it. You know, our kids do not drink and drive because of mad. Yeah, he's right, though. I mean, you look at other diseases and they've gone from being a death sentence to something that is actually more manageable. But again, that takes advocacy, which so many great people in the Parkinson's community are doing. It takes prevention, better care and treatment. Right. Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and Dr. Blum says the problem is that we're all just too reluctant to take action. Everybody's willingness to act. You know, I think um, it has to do with, with a lot of things. Uh, one is, I think, uh, and I've said this on numerous occasions, and I'm going to say it here again to the Canadian folks. People with Parkinson's are among the nicest people on the planet, yourself included. But I mean that from the bottom of my heart, you know, I, I chose a career in medicine. This is a quick private note because my mother had multiple sclerosis, but I thank God I made a switch to Parkinson's because the people are just wonderful. The families are wonderful. They are amazing in their resilience in fighting against this ugly disease. But at the same time, that fighting spirit does not translate into fighting against governments and the injustice. They fight against the disease. But I think we as a community, and by me, we, I mean, the patients, the families, we as providers, professionals are way too kind, way too passive, not knocking on the door. And we as a community, and I mean all of us, have been way too kind, way too passive. This is, if you look at their 
a lot of published work. Not only is this the fastest growing neurological condition, it is also one of the most debilitating conditions. It was a paper in Journal Neurology, Neurosurgeon Psychiatry, and it focused on neurological conditions at large. It wasn't focused on Parkinson's. In the top 10 of most severe motor diseases, Parkinson's was number two. Only a high cervical cord paralysis was worse. But in the, in the numbers of mental conditions, Parkinson's was also ranked number two. It's both. And now you're hit twice, right? So we're being way too kind. I love that. Don't be passive. Be active. Become a PD Avenger. That's right. And that's why we created PD Avengers. We need a global alliance of people with Parkinson's and their friends and their families and their doctors and their, their, their care teams uh, to, to help us change the world as it, as it pertains to Parkinson's. So go to PDAvengers.com, sign up and learn more. Now it's that time of the podcast where Larry and Rebecca check in with each other. So you've been doing some thinking about uh, this uh, webinar that I hosted. I had such a positive reaction to so much of what was said. But to be honest, initially, I had a bit of a reaction to the comparisons to the other communities, the early HIV activists and the mad mothers and who did amazing work. Because as Dr. Blum perceptively pointed out, we're a different community and we're very nice and kind as a, as a community. There are those within us, of course. We're not the type to chain ourselves to anything. We're not the type to, you know, to, to rage against the machine, right? And in that way, um, we, need to, we need to figure out how to get things done and create and take that sense of urgency and use it. Part of the problem is, you know, apathy and depression are symptoms. It's built into the disease, <laughs> right? So, you know, so, so we, we don't just need to activate um, people with Parkinson's, but it's kind of what the PD Avengers is saying is we need everybody involved from right. family and friends and colleagues to doctors and nurses and therapists and home health care and like uh, uh, all these all these different people that are connected to Parkinson's need to have a unified voice as we move forward. That's one of the great things about how the PD community is reacting differently. So we're saying, okay, let's get the numbers together then. Let's get enough voices together. And then they can't ignore us. So rather than taking a few people who are willing to scream really loudly, we're saying, no, let's collect all of these people, these growing massive numbers of people who are affected by Parkinson's, and let's create one unified, really loud voice. Yeah, if you think about people with Parkinson's and how they live their life, much of what they say is under their breath and whispered, like, oh, God, oh. We need those whispers to become a roar. And that's where everybody else comes in. So something we've started doing is looking around like, okay, so in the future, what are we going to need? And so we started looking at apartments, like one floor apartments and stuff, because we have big stairs. And I can still go up the stairs and stuff, but we, we know how Parkinson's is, but we don't know how fast it progresses. So we're, we're, we're casing that out and we're looking at that and we're starting to do some end-of-life planning because we don't have a will yet, which we should. Shame on us. But, right. you know, just three years after diagnosis, 
we're we're beginning to start to take care of that stuff so we're prepared for it. I think that's a smart plan too. I think it's a smart plan for anybody who's approaching 50 and has a child and a, and perhaps a complicated situation at end of life with YOPD. It's something that we know in the community people start to think about really early. And not just wills and making sure that things are wrapped up tidily at the end and that there's a plan for if both of us go and for a child and all of that. It's what kind of situation do you want at the end of your life? Thinking about living wills, power of attorney, what do you want the situation to be in the hospital? Should somebody need to make make some decisions? What do you want, Larry, as your plan towards the end, should you not be able to speak for yourself? These are all things that I don't know that there are a whole lot of 49-year-olds thinking about that. But certainly beginning that process and thinking about it and making sure that it's taken care of now before we need to be facing it and before it's an emotional. Right. It's attached to too many emotions. It still feels far away. Right. So it's not as emotional as maybe it would be have had we needed to do this because the need was there. And that feels odd, but there's really nothing about the Parkinson's experience so far that hasn't felt odd on some level because it's forcing us to think about things we never would have needed to consider. We never thought we would need to consider. Well, even, even uh, hopefully I can work for a long time, but you know maybe I won't be able to. And so looking at, okay, what does that look like? And are we prepared for that? And right. what do we need to do to get in a position so we can do that? Right. The Parkinson's Society of British Columbia and the Movement Disorder Clinic have all been very helpful in getting us resources and getting us connected to people who can help us have those conversations in a, in a really smart way with, with experience. And we've we found people very generous with their time and information. Yes, a ton of resources available. We're lucky here in BC to have, and specifically in Vancouver, to have a lot of resources very near us. But we also know people all over Canada and all over the United States. And there are similar resources for every one of those people. The Parkinson's community is very lucky in that way. Uh, The more we um, have those conversations, the closer that I feel to you. How so? Which is, you know, it just sort of reemphasizes our bond. And 21 years ago, we said till death do us part, and now we're planning mm-hmm. for death, mm-hmm. which is interesting. And not that I plan to die anytime soon, but, you know, I don't think a lot of people plan to die when they die. They just die, right? Right. And so having those discussions is... is uh, Reminds me how much I love you and Henry and, and our relationship and our family. It is, it is thinking ahead and imagining what that would be like and are we good with that? How do we want to set that up? And you're right, it does reinforce that commitment. Say, okay, this is what we're in for. And yes, it's scary, but I'm not going anywhere. This is what my intention is with our marriage and it always will be. It's just as bonding and just as meaningful to be thinking about it in this, what could be a very sad way, 
but also I'm finding it kind of comforting because we know that we're there for each other mm-hmm. until whatever to into the the gray area before us <laughs> and that's really the most one of the most difficult parts of Parkinson's is that there is no roadmap. People go, what's the prognosis? And the prognosis is unknown. You know, they, they, they have theories, they've got averages, they've got, but everybody's so different, everybody's symptoms are so different, everybody's progression is so different that you can't predict it. And so you need to plan for this because you don't know what tomorrow brings. And we just hold out hope that um, we have more good days than bad and uh, that it lasts as long as it can last. What I know for sure is that I love you. I love you too, honey. This is When Life Gives You Parkinson's, a Curious Cast podcast. Our story producer is Dila Velazquez. Sound design by Greg Schott. The presenting partner is Parkinson Canada. Diagnosed with Parkinson's, you're not alone. Parkinson.ca. Thanks also to our promotional partners, Spotlight YOPD. The only organization in the world with a singular focus of raising awareness of young onset Parkinson's disease. You can find them at spotlightyopd.org. The Michael J. Fox Foundation, Parkinson's podcast, hosted by Larry Gifford. Available on Apple Podcasts and at michaeljfox.org. The World Parkinson Congress 2022 in Barcelona, Spain. Go to WPC2022.org for details. Join Woo-hoo. Rebecca and I. We're going to be there. and We're going to have some tapas. <laughs> and talk about Parkinson's. <laughs> <laughs> hey, PD Avengers as well. If you're ready to help end Parkinson's, then you can join now at PDAvengers.com. And thank you for listening. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, give the show a five-star rating and feel free to comment. You can also engage with us on social media. Please do. It's at Parkinson's Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can always email us, parkinsonspod at curiouscast.ca. Oh, and, and be sure to share a link to this podcast with your friends on email, Facebook, Twitter, your blog, wherever. That helps uh, get, the, get the word out about the pod. Absolutely. And remember, keep positive. Keep exercising. Keep listening. We'll talk to you next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.